music had already been in his blood for more than a decade. Having studied piano and music theory at the Manhattan School of Music in New York when he was eight years old. But when Howard Levy first picked up a diatonic harmonica as an 18 year old college student at Northwestern, little did he know that he would soon reinvent the instrument, essentially pioneering the overblow overdraw methods for bending and creating notes that were previously thought missing from the instrument. He has since mastered the harmonica and has created a career in music that has led him to many unique opportunities, including his tenure as an original flectone. But Howard is not defined solely by this role. In fact, he only spent a few years with the flectones until he decided to part ways to pursue an open door of opportunities that continue to reinvent the role of the harmonica and challenge his own musical interests. Inside Music Cast welcomes Howard Levy. Hey, Howard, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. You know, it, it goes without saying that, you know, in our minds, you're a true music pioneer when it comes to the harmonica. And, you know, you've perfected uh, the overblow and overdraw techniques for playing chromatics on a diatonic uh, harmonica. And, you know, this, this if, for those who aren't really familiar with that, it unleashes all the missing notes in a Richter tune diatonic. And for harmonica novices like Eddie and me, <laughs> can you explain how this works <laughs> and, and what this actually means? Well, the the notes that are on a harmonica are... Basically, most of the notes in the major scale, but they're not even all there on every octave. And uh, some of them are you get by blowing out. Some of them you get by drawing in. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the blues players discovered that you could bend notes. And that's been a part of standard blues technique for, uh, oh, who knows how long. Maybe right. maybe 100 years. Yeah. I don't know who the first person to, uh, to really use bent notes intentionally was. Uh, no one knows. Mm -hmm. But there were still a bunch of notes missing. Um, so when I started playing harmonica when I was about 18, I had already been playing piano since I was eight. And I thought, what kind of instrument is this that doesn't have all the notes on it? That's, that's nuts. I, I mean, if I want to play the flat third and the blues in the second octave, it's not there. Yeah. And it's there on every other instrument. So basically what I did was I played in such a way that I started experimenting. I knew I could bend notes on the draw on the bottom of the harmonica, and I could bend on the blow notes on the top. And so I thought, well, if these missing notes are here somewhere, maybe if I do the bending techniques the opposite way, something interesting might happen. And sure enough, uh, a note popped out that was higher instead of lower. Interesting. And it just so happened to be one of the missing notes. And uh, then I thought, well... If that's there in one place, maybe it's there in all the other places. Uh -huh. And as if by magic, it is there in all the other places on the harmonica where the notes were previously missing. And so there are maybe two recordings of guys hitting one of those notes before I discovered this in 1970. Uh -huh. But no one really used it, and it was not known. And so when I started playing in that way, really using it to get the notes a good deal of the time, you know, to really just play music on the diatonic harmonica, it was something new uh, that had really never been done before. And so yeah. I found it when I was 18 as a stubborn college freshman in my dorm at Northwestern, you know, on those cold winter nights and, you know, when there's a lot of snow. <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of time for discovering what to do with the harmonica. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, in doing some research, I, I actually did read that, how you discovered this. And, and you know, Joseph Richter, who who actually, he, he invented like the blow-draw mechanisms for harmonica in the early 19th century. Is that right? 
You know, no one really knows about the Richter tuning, if, it, if he invented it. It's called that, and uh, it came about maybe sometime in the mid-19th century. The harmonica was itself was invented somewhere in southern Germany in the 1820s. Yeah. Uh, you know, you can tune reeds any way you want, but this tuning seems to really catch on because it has the basic one and five chord on the bottom octave uh, for playing straight harp in the key of the harmonica. And so, no matter what you do above that, you'll you'll harmonize simple melodies with this with the basic two chords of music, and that's why it caught on. But just if you play it in reverse, it just so happens to have the dominant seventh chord of the blues and the four chord of the blues. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of the Richter tuning. He never, he didn't know what the blues was. He <laughs> had the blues, but he didn't know what the blues was. Uh, he inadvertently invented the world's greatest blues instrument. Absolutely. You know, when I think about the harmonica sound, you know, just, and, and again, not knowing a lot of the history about uh, of the instrument itself, you know, I typically had always associated it with, you know, and geographically speaking to like, southern United States, and I identify it as somewhat of an American roots instrument. But the harmonica was actually, like you said, invented in Europe, in Germany there in the 1800s. And, you know, other free reed instruments like the sheng were, were used in East Asia, and, act, and, you know, eventually derivations of it made it their way back to Europe. But I don't think the uh, harmonica appeared in, in the States until, or into America anyway, until 1857. And the, the history on this instrument runs so deep. Have you explored these various time periods and how they have affected uh, the growth of the instrument? You know, I'm really not that big of a history buff on the harmonica. Uh, the guy who's really knowledgeable about that is Joe Felisco. Okay. Uh, and whether the harmonica actually got here in any great numbers before the Civil War, that's a matter of dispute, apparently. Uh, because I think that, the, uh, that Matthias Honer really perfected the assembly line method of making harmonicas later yeah. than that. And uh, that's when they got cheap because they had previously been handmade. Yeah. And it was really a true cottage industry. And uh, Matthias Honer was like the Henry Ford of the harmonica. And he really um, understood that there was a tremendous potential to make a lot of money if you could automate the manufacture of this instrument and and bring the price way down and just sell millions of them, which they did. The Honer company uh they were master marketers, and they would take basically the same instrument and repackage it with some patriotic name of having to do with the country. Right. <laughs> and export, like the, the Marine Band harmonica, for example. Right. It's a, got a picture of the United States Marine Corps marching band on it. There's no <laughs> one playing harmonicas in the United States Marine Corps marching band. <laughs> That's uh, great. And everyone, if you ask most blues players what kind of harmonica I play, they say, I play a Marine Band, and, which is sort of surreal. Yeah, uh, but that is the the standard uh, ten hole diatonic that seemed to be the best one made uh, that most blues players preferred to use. Mm-hmm. And uh, Honer uh, was the, of course, the leading maker of harmonicas in Germany, and they absorbed most of the other factories eventually. And they they started realizing at a certain point that these crazy Americans wanted to play the blues on their instruments and so like hey if they want to do this it's fine but nobody at the honer factory until very recently even knew how to bend a note interesting they were very (laughs) traditional Uh and trussingen the town where the instruments are made is it it was a very sleepy little uh southern german town uh at the edge of the black forest you know and these uh the jobs in the factory for years were handed down through families 
and there there was a lot of handwork and a lot of there still is some handwork um uh, a lot of the tuning is is done by hand i mean the fine tuning yeah wow yeah there there's a guy in a booth that's a soundproof booth and he has a master reed plate that's that air is blowing on and then he uh basically tunes the reeds with a file by air blowing over the the reed plate that he's trying to tune and matching up the vibrations with the uh, master reed plate. Wow. That's amazing. Wow. Uh, and uh, boy, those guys are treated very well because they're very important. And, and one of the other interesting things about the diatonic harmonica was that it was tuned to make the chords sound good. It's what's called just intonation mm -hmm. for a long, long time. And if you tried playing melodies on them, the melodies would sound really kind of funky and out of tune, uh, especially the fifth hole draw was extremely flat. Uh, and that's due to the uh, the, the just intonation, um, the Pythagorean tuning. Mm -hmm. um, so that that F is the last F in the circle of fifths. It, it's it's extremely flat, like maybe twenty or thirty cents flat. Uh, so then they started compromising the tunings a little bit because they realized that maybe this wasn't the greatest thing to have pure just intonation. Right. And then in the late 60s, they came up with a model, Honer did, called the Golden Melody, which was the first equal-tempered tuned diatonic. Now, I got a hold of this and I thought, wow, I really like this. And I had no idea why it felt easier for me to play. It was years later that someone told me, oh yeah, someone from Honer, yeah, this, is a, this was tuned to the tempered scale. But of course it was better for me because I was trying to play in every key and trying to play it like a real instrument instead of just you know playing in a few key, a few basic keys on it, right. and especially that fifth hole draw, which is the F on a C harp. Uh, I like playing in that key. Mm -hmm. I was one of the first people to play in that key, and part of the reason why was that note was so flat that you wouldn't have wanted to play in that key. <laughs> <laughs> so you know sometimes the. Uh, you know, the uh, invention of a, or the evolution of the manufacturing of an instrument also influences uh, the way people play it. Yeah. Well, speaking of Honer, um, they had a popular harp called Honer Super 64. And a few people made that sort of very, very popular. Stevie Wonder at one time made it famous with his technique and style. And, and you know, uh, you know, when I, we were talking a little bit before the interview and, and we're talking about so many other pop, uh, musicians that have used the harmonica, like Dylan's, you know, Springsteen and Jagger and Billy Joel and those guys. And, and with all due respect to them, we didn't know how, quite how to ask this question. But uh, with all due respect to them, you know, we sort of know that your your, your technique and, and your abilities are sort of in a different stratospheric level than these guys are in a way. But well, I wouldn't say that Stevie Wonder is. I mean, see, that that's a chromatic harmonica that Stevie is playing. Right, right. 64 has the button on the side. And, and he approached it kind of like the way Junior Walker approached the saxophone. You know, okay. it was a, sort of an R&B uh, harmonica style. And, and, and he was really the first to play the chromatic that way. The chromatic was invented in the early 20th century because of people's frustration not being able to get all the notes. I got so you. the chromatic has basically two sets of reeds tuned to what the middle octave is like on the diatonic. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. you, you blow and you get the major arpeggio and you draw and you get uh, the, the remaining notes, two, four, six, and seven. Okay. And uh, when you push the button in, you get the same thing in D flat. So wow. you got the button out is C, the button in is D flat. Yeah. And, and so that by alternating with that button, you can get the chromatic scale. And uh, Stevie had his harps tuned, I heard, very sharp, so that he kind of bent down into it and gave it a juicier tone yeah. than most of the other chromatic players before him 
who uh, like the, the groups like the Harmonicats and the, those guys who were playing chromatic harmonica as the lead instrument, and then uh, Larry Adler, yes, you know, uh, who was the great uh, chromatic virtuoso, not really a jazz player, but uh, a great harmonica player. So there was a very high level of technical proficiency on chromatic, mm-hmm. but until, and of course, Tuz Thielman, who was the, the greatest uh, jazz harmonica player in history, uh, you know, was a, uh, is still sure. uh, a, an amazing chromatic harmonica player. But I'm the first one to really try to make the diatonic harmonica into the equal of a chromatic or a saxophone or a flute or a trumpeter. I, I, I try to tell the world that this instrument, I think it can play anything, and not only can it play anything, but it has this unique character when it's playing that makes everything played on it sound different from any other instrument. Absolutely. That's neat. That's really and cool. the chromatic harmonica, you can't really bend notes. You can sort of bend them. But note bending is really a combination uh, of the sounds of the two reeds. And what really happens if you're bending, let's say, a D down to a D flat on a, on a C harmonica on the first hole, uh, what really happens is the D reed bends down due to this resonance thing you do inside your mouth and pulling your tongue back. And the C reed actually bends up and takes over the sound. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you're, what you're really hearing is a C sharp vibrating on the C reed, even though you're not, you don't think you're actually playing it. But there's this dance of vibrations inside the chamber that activates the other reed. And on a chromatic harmonica, none of this happens. The reeds are, are totally separated from each other uh, by means of, uh, of these uh, windsaver valves and just structures the structure of the uh, of the chambers. So uh, the instruments are cousins, you know, but they're yeah. they're really almost more more different than they are similar in sound and technique. That's really neat. As you're explaining all this, I'm thinking to myself, you know, about this 18 year old kid who's sitting in a cold college dorm room <laughs> figuring all of this out, and it's like it's sort of mind boggling, you know. Oh, really? I mean, it must have taken you a while to actually to discover this. Correct. Well, so you know, uh, what happened is that I. I had a kind of a breakthrough, and I bent my first note one day, and I actually wrote a story about it. It was at a, after a political rally, believe it or not. <laughs> uh, and I, I was there. I was. I didn't know a soul, and I had just been to this rally of the Chicago Seven, who were tried with uh, inciting sure. uh, inciting to riot Riots, yeah. at the 1968 Democratic Convention. Okay. So this was September of '69, and uh, they were making fundraising speeches for their defense. And uh, it was, I was very involved in the peace movement and the anti-Vietnam War movement. I marched in lots of demonstrations when I was in high school in New York. And I went to this thing. And I have no idea if the rally has anything to do with it, but I picked the harmonica. I took it out of my pocket. I thought, this is the time when I'd like to play the harmonica. And all of a sudden, I bent <laughs> note for the first time, really did it. I'd been farting around with it for about five months with no success. And then very quickly... I figured out how to play a lot, lots of the blues licks I had been listening to, and it was it was like the first day of the rest of my life, and oh my uh, it was very thrilling. And so uh, there I am at the first the first week of college with this brand new mode of uh, musical expression that I had not anticipated at all. I had no idea what it was going to feel like, you know, to do this and how it would kind of change my personality. Because before that, I had just been a piano player, not just, but I was a very good piano player. But playing a wind instrument and bending notes and all this stuff, uh, it made me feel like a, like a new person. And so that's when my 
exploration into the instrument started. And I discovered all the different kinds of bending you could do, and I figured out the overblows within, I don't know, four or five months of starting to play. Mm -hmm. So, of course, in the ensuing years, I, I worked really, really hard on it, and I also learned a lot more about the actual instrument and its history. I knew nothing about that when I started. I just, you know, went to a music store, plunked down a few bucks, and bought a harmonica because a friend of mine uh, played, and and I figured if he could bend notes and play blues licks, I could probably do it too. You know, it was very casual. Yeah. Huh. There wasn't any particular musical influence that led you to the harmonica. It was just a very casual moment, like you said. Oh, no, no, there was. No, they were musical. Okay. I had heard Chicago blues records Okay. Uh, when I was in high school in New York. My friend who played, uh, he said, Howard, listen to this stuff. It was Junior Wells and Paul Butterfield and James Cotton and Lil Walter. And uh, Growing up in New York City, we there were no blues clubs in New York. Maybe there was one. Yeah. But the, New York is not a blues town. I mean, and, and the, the, the blacks who came up from the South to New York didn't, didn't really preserve the traditional blues in New York City. It was, it was a different experience than what happened in, in Chicago and Detroit and Cleveland, Indianapolis, uh, St. Louis. Um, this was the, the mu musical tastes became more sophisticated in New York. Yeah. Uh, and New York is really uh, a jazz town yeah. and, and, you know, lots of Broadway and, and all that kind of stuff. And uh, the Harlem Renaissance and all that, those kind of things, very sophisticated urban music. But uh, Chicago preserved the real stuff that came right from Mississippi, right from the Delta. And uh, th that really blew me away. I, I hadn't really heard that stuff growing up in New York. And it was very, very powerful. And uh, it made a big impression on me. So that's, yeah, that is a big reason I wanted to learn how to play. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, you mentioned a second ago that uh, you know you started out playing piano, and I think you were, I think, what eight years old when you actually started playing and and uh, taking lessons. And mm -hmm. I think your parents they were very supportive when it came to your education in music. And in fact, I read that they used to drive you from Queens every Saturday to study at the uh, Manhattan School of Music. And Worth, I was just curious about your parents. Were they also musical as well? Yeah, my, my parents, thank goodness, are still alive. Uh, my dad uh, still is singing opera and Broadway tunes. Uh, so he was he tried to have a career as a singer when he was younger, and he did not succeed, but he always kept singing for his whole life. And uh, my mom played in high school, and so they were very interested. Uh, they, they loved classical music, opera, and uh, Broadway. Those were their main things, and they used to have music parties. I didn't realize how unusual it was. My my dad would stand, uh, they'd all stand around in the piano and sing. And uh, so there was you know, a lot of music growing up in my house. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. You know, the classical music, it seems to be, you know, sort of at the center of what you've done and um, how you've grown up. But did you actually study, the, I read somewhere that you uh, actually studied pipe organ and harpsichord. Is that correct? Yeah. Really? I, uh, when I, I went to a, a private school for high school and they had a pipe organ. And the first time I heard this thing, I went, Wow. Man, oh man, mm -hmm. I'd love to try that. And so uh, I had studied piano and theory at Manhattan School on Saturdays for four years. And then this was when I was 14 and 15, I took pipe organ lessons. So, you know, playing the foot pedals, I played a bunch of Bach, Toccata and Fugue in D minor, the Pascal in C minor, the little G minor Fugue, and, you know, some of the really amazing Bach organ music. And uh, when I was a kid playing Bach on the piano, I kind of hated it because it, it was so, it sounded so stark. Uh, but on the organ, it sounded really rich, and, and there was some very far out 
kind of gypsy stuff in it too. Uh, yeah. The Toccata and Fugue in D minor is, is sort of sounds like flamenco. And uh, I just really developed a, a deep love for Bach uh, through playing it on the organ. Neat. Yeah. Hey, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, Eddie and I want to talk about Chicago and how you ended up uh, making it your home. But right now we want to take a listen to a track from an album Howard released in 2009 called Alone and Together. And this is a track called Taking a Chance on Love. about your um, your move to Chicago was it um, when you were entering uh, to study at Northwestern University what actually brought you to Chicago yeah I went to Northwestern for a year and a half mm-hmm. in 69 70 71 um, and uh, at that point I really didn't want to be in school anymore the 
the, the call of music was so strong for me. And I, I didn't really want to be in a music school. I just wanted to be living. Yeah. You know, out living. And I wanted to go back to New York and uh, live in Manhattan. So I, I actually got a gig playing in an off-Broadway musical. So that was a, a great excuse to drop out of school and go back there. And uh, God, I think it paid 300 a week. <laughs> <laughs> Which in 1971 wasn't terrible. That's not no, bad. It's, yeah, it's that's true. You, man. Back in 71, yeah. Oh, no. Cheap housing you could get. And, uh, and the show ran for about two or three weeks of previews. And it closed on opening night. <laughs> so uh, it, was, it was, let's say it wasn't a big success. So there I was in New York and I had to figure out other ways of making a living. And it was, it was a bit of a struggle. And, uh, but it was everyone who grows up in New York, like in Brooklyn and Queens, everyone has this desire to live in Manhattan. There's just something about the place that's right. kind of magnetic. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. my whole childhood, I, I was always going into, we call it the city. Sure. I was always going into the city. And a bunch of people in my family, but a lot of my relatives lived in actually in Greenwich Village. Okay. And so I was uh, down there a lot as a kid. Uh, and I, I just loved the feeling of the place. And so I ended up living on the Upper West Side by Columbia because I had friends around there. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, at that time, I started playing a lot of other instruments. I, I, I played a lot of saxophone and picked up guitar and mandolin and flute and uh, hand percussion instruments. and. I played on the street quite a bit during that time, uh, and I had uh, a really wild year and a half in New York, and at a certain point, I said, you know, I'm not good enough to be here, to be playing with the really great players that are here, and I don't really have enough money to live in a nice place here, and why don't, uh, this place is very dangerous, it was <laughs> the early 70s, yeah. and I'm starting to go crazy. And I think I need to get out of here and maybe I ought to go back to, to Evanston for a little while, figure out what I'm going to do. Okay. So I came back and I met the woman who became my wife uh, at a party. And uh, we moved in together and I ended up staying in Chicago and having two kids and uh, being married for a number of years. And got divorced uh, about 10 years ago. And I have right now uh, my girlfriend who I've been with for quite a while 12 years i guess it has been yeah 13 years uh, it turns out we were next door neighbors on west 122nd street <laughs> and, and when she was going to juilliard in manhattan <laughs> as a college student yeah and we met each other at a cafe in evanston so uh yeah, sometimes life is full of these long circles. <laughs> and surprises that you know it's ironic that you 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 then met her again in chicago is that correct I never met her in New York. We we lived about oh. apart from each other, but we oh, never met. Her. So That's you discovered that. Is she a musician also? Yeah, she's a violinist in the Chicago Symphony. Oh, and, very uh, cool. We recorded a CD together called Cappuccino. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's right. I did know about that. It's uh, Fox Failing. Well, you know, you know, there's no question that you know we've talked about this already, and you know, Eddie and I both agree you're arguably one of the most talented harmonica players around but tell me about your road to success and let me preface it by pointing out that you what know, is like, success I, is that on google maps <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I just wanted to preface that, though, by pointing out that, you know, the harmonica was such a, a key instrument in rock and blues music in the 50s and 60s, as, you know, as well as going into this, you know, even in the early 70s. But music changed as the electric guitar became, you know, much more prominent in music in that 70s period, 60s, 70s period and beyond. And the harmonica's role, you know, in popular music, that is, started you know, to fade a little bit. And did you ever wonder early on how you were going to make a niche for yourself in this business? You know, I'm not the world's most practical person. Uh, <laughs> so as I said, I, you know, piano is really my main instrument. Right. And uh, I, I just always tried to live a life that I thought was, that, that I thought made sense. So mm -hmm. if I didn't have a lot of money, I lived in places that were cheaper. If I had more money, I would, you know, buy a house. Uh, yeah. I, I played a whole lot of different instruments and I was interested in many different kinds of music. Uh, in the early 70s, I got very interested in what we now call world music, which didn't have a name back then. Right. Uh, so I was, my interests spread out in many different directions. And I found that in Chicago, I started being a professional musician around 75, 76, I think, uh, that in Chicago there was enough variety here where I could make a living from through the combination of my abilities mm -hmm. as a pianist, yeah. a harmonica player, somebody who was comfortable playing in a lot of different styles. And so I never put all my eggs in one basket. And uh, I played with some of the really great folk musicians in Chicago, uh, Steve Goodman, John Prine, Bonnie Kolak. Bob Gibson, uh, who wanted musicians who were, you know, sensitive and responsive to lyrics, which I've, I, I, I am, and I, you know, I, I always loved folk music from the time I was a teenager. Yeah. At the same time, as I, I thought of myself as a jazz musician, and uh, then I, in the late seventies, I started forming my own jazz groups where I mostly played piano. And uh, I joined a Latin jazz group called Chevere, which yeah. I'm still in right. 33 years later. Wow. Uh, and I started playing with some of the really good younger and older jazz musicians around Chicago. And uh, so I, I, I sort of spread out. And also I founded a band called the Balkan Rhythm Band that played Bulgarian music. Okay. I, I didn't play any piano in that and very little harmonica. I played a little bit of piano, a little harmonica, but mostly saxophone and percussion. Really? So I had this extremely interesting life. And then right around that time, in the early 80s, I started getting called to play on commercials, uh, jingles we call them. Okay, right. And at the time, there was a huge jingle industry in Chicago. Absolutely. Uh, they called me for harmonica. And so... I ended up playing on about a thousand of them. I, that's an estimate, uh, probably more. Uh, and that really, really honed my craft. Uh, you walk in, they shove a piece of music in front of you, you put your headphones on, the click track starts, and you try to play it right. Yeah. So uh, I developed my ability to read on the harmonica, but also to play with feeling and which is something I think I've always had. Yeah, right. Uh, you know, uh, sort of disciplining myself to read and, and to play precisely with the click track and to read these these odd time meter bars and, you know, that, that used to be in commercials, you know, for the timing of the voiceover, you'd have a bar of five and right. in the middle of a country chart, you know, all that kind of stuff. It was like a score, yeah. Yeah, and, and uh, they were very skilled arrangers who played on this and excellent studio musicians. And uh, after a while, it became a steady thing for me. I played on 100, 150 sessions a year. And so I started making a living in Chicago in the studios and 
playing music I wanted to play at night rather than having to, uh, you know, play weddings and all that other kind of stuff, which I, I, I did a little bit of that, but I never really did that much of it. And I, I more, the music I played was more what I wanted to play, but playing on jingles is what enabled me to, to make a living and buy a house and all that other stuff. So it's, it's, it wasn't New York or LA, but, uh, that's what really how my harmonica playing paid off in yeah. a way that I never thought it would. Very neat. You know, Howard, I'm very interested. You mentioned one of your collaborations that you had in the past 30 years. In fact, I remember that uh, it was, must have been around 12 years ago. I actually heard Chevere play in Chicago, and uh, it was very, I mean, very amazing music. But I'm interested in some of the collaborations or projects that uh, that you're involved in. And maybe I can... Um, you know, mention a couple of them, and you can tell sure. me a, a little bit about that. Uh, let's let's go ahead and start with Chevere because the it was started by a guy named Alejo Povedo, and uh, back in '77, and uh, you've been with them uh, all along, right? Tell us a little bit about this because it's a Latin fusion jazz band, you know. Yeah, I joined in '79, and uh, I, I I really developed a deep love for uh, Latin jazz uh, mm-hmm. growing up in New York City, and uh, coming out here, I really missed it, and then I went out to hear this band. And I just thought, I really want to be a part of this. Yeah. And they were playing a very, you know, it was kind of unique because they were doing a lot of Brazilian jazz, which I was unfamiliar with, you know, Brazilian Latin jazz, whatever, right. as well as the Afro-Cuban stuff and uh, some funk and blues type of things, too. So I started playing with them and then I started bringing my own tunes in uh, and they really liked my tunes and we started working on, on my tunes and we actually did a recording that never was released in the early 80s. Mm-hmm. Uh, with a bunch of my tunes on it. And it was very exciting for me. They're great musicians, and I learned a lot, and uh, it seemed like a, a really good relationship between all of us. Uh, some some of us were Latinos, some of us were uh, various non-Latinos, you know. And yeah, so yeah, there, right. It was a very interesting blend of folks. It seemed to be a pretty eclectic mix, yes. Uh, another um, uh Collaboration that I'm very interested in because I've heard the music and it's it's just beautiful. It's a uh, trio global, and that's uh, you you were connected uh, with actually two interesting musicians, Eugene Friesen on on cello, and of course the famous uh, the amazing percussionist Glenn Velez. Um, tell us a little bit about uh, trio global. Before I do, I have to tell you that we finally put out an album, Chevere, uh due to my very strong willpower. We finally got a CD out in 2005, I think. It's called Secret Dream, and it's on my label, which is called Balkan Samba Music, which I'll explain a little more about later. But uh, Trio Globo, when I, after I quit the Flectones, I ended up, uh, I had met Glenn earlier, actually, uh, but Glenn and Gene had a trio with a pianist, uh, and he didn't want to do it anymore, and they contacted me. And... Uh, right from the first moment that we started playing together. This was uh, wonderful. And we actually recorded the first track on our first CD. The first day we met, we met in a recording studio in Connecticut. (laughs) Really? (laughs) The first day? And we recorded Lumbriga, uh, which is my composition, the first day we met. And when we recorded the rest of the CD, the first CD, like a year or two later, we we couldn't play it as well as we <laughs> we had the first day, so that's the that's the one that's on the first CD. Wow. That's amazing. There's something about those uh, magic moments at the very beginning. You you can never replicate those, you know. That's right. That was a very special thing, and we recorded two CDs together with with compositions by all three of us. And that that's one of the beautiful things about the band is that Gene and Glenn are, are such wonderful writers. 
and we all really enjoy playing each other's music. And uh, our, our writing styles are different, but very complementary. And uh, we also do uh, free improvisations, and there are free improvs on each of the three CDs. Yeah. We just we just recorded a new one in 2010, and it's called Steering by the Stars. Oh, uh, right. That's an amazing piece of work. I really, I really yes. encourage our listeners to pick this project up because you you will not uh, be sorry that you picked up this this latest uh, album. Yeah, this is the first time we've done covers. So we we have two covers on the CD as as, as well as our original uh, tunes and free improvs. Yeah. The covers, which we, we recorded both of them in one session, are Giant Steps and This Land Is Your Land. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about Giant Steps. <laughs> That's uh, yeah. It, I'm very, very proud and excited that I that we got that version of Giant Steps Down because uh, That's cool. it's something I've been working on for years, and they immediately just latched onto the the concept of it, and uh, we play it in four different time meters, and I also have kind of reharmonized it and thought about different different ways about the core changes, and uh, it's kind of thrilling to me. And also, the arrangement of uh, "This Land Is Your Land" is really beautiful, and that was one take. Wow. I was curious about Eugene and, and Glenn. Do they both uh, live in the Chicago area? No, uh, Gene lives in Brattleboro, Vermont, and it teaches at Berkeley in Boston. Okay, mm-hmm. okay. And, uh, Glenn lives with his wife in Montclair, New Jersey. Uh, his wife, Lori Kotler, who's a fantastic Indian rhythmic singer. Okay. Um, and so it's hard to get us together. <laughs> well, that's, that, was my, that was leading to my next question, is, uh, is I'm a Big fan of Trio Global, and I was curious, um, you know, do you guys play together often? Do you do, you know, gigs in Chicago or other areas? Well, we really haven't played much. Uh, we, we have some stuff coming up uh, in this next year, and we, we played a few things in the Midwest after the CD came out, uh-huh. spring of uh, 2010. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we had a few isolated gigs after that, but after when I started doing the Flectones, uh, when I got on that Flectones juggernaut, it was pretty hard to schedule Anything else that I did, you know, it had to fit into the little cracks in the schedule. So now uh, that my schedule's opened up, uh, we're, we're trying to book a whole bunch more stuff with Trio Global, which I, I really think is one of the most interesting groups, musical groups uh, in existence. <laughs> I, I, I totally agree. I yes. would agree, too. Yeah. And I, I, we're going to have to keep tabs on you because I want to uh, find out where, where you're going to be playing because I want to come see you perform live sometime. That would be yes. fantastic. Hey, I want to uh, talk a little about the Flectones, but before we do that, let's give everyone a chance to check out Trio Globo. And I want to play a track from Steering by the Stars, an album that was released in early 2010, and this is a track called In the Village.
mentioned Flectones, and I want to jump ship over, and I, I want to talk about the Flectones because I, I couldn't do this interview without throwing in a little bit. But, <laughs> um, but you know, you met Bela at the Winnipeg Folk Festival. I think it was back in 1987. But I was curious to know how you guys ultimately, you know, formed Bela Fleck and the Flectones. How did, how did that all happen? Well, after I met Bela and we, you know, we sat up and jammed, uh, uh, somebody asked him to put together an unusual band, more jazzy than his usual thing, uh-huh. for a TV show in Louisville. And it was called the Lonesome Pine Special. Okay. And so uh, by that time, Bela had met Victor, and Victor had introduced him to Roy. Right. And uh, he thought, wow, this would be an interesting band. So uh, when we actually played on the TV show with I, I basically didn't have, didn't even rehearse with them. I, I just flew down and we just played at soundcheck. <laughs> it's kind of a longer story, but uh, that's basically the size of it. They rehearsed, and as soon as we played, the audience went nuts. And we looked at each other afterwards and said, uh, "Maybe this is a band. Uh, you want to try it again?" So Bela said, "Sure. When I'm on break from Newgrass Revival, why don't I try booking some gigs?" And so uh, he booked three gigs in clubs in Nashville, Johnson City and Knoxville, Tennessee. And, you know, after those three gigs, boy, you know, we knew that we had to keep doing this. And so Bela put up the money for the first recording and Nashville's uh, branch of Warner Brothers was interested and they put it out. And they also financed our first video, which was The Sinister Minister, which I really don't like most music videos, but that was a really good one. It was. <laughs> I think it really came out great. Yeah. And it, it, we just kind of instantly were well-known, which was, you know, for an instrumental band to get that kind of attention, it was the exactly the right time in America and uh, the right record label and uh, the right four guys. Yeah. Uh, but I, I actually got tired of doing it, um, partially because... Uh, I had two kids at home and no one else had kids. And, mm-hmm. uh, and also, I just, I'm used to variety, as you can tell yeah. from talking about all my different groups that I'm in. Sure, and, right. uh, you know, I love playing jazz. Uh, so uh, somehow, if the Flectones had toured less and could have been, you know, played 60 or 70 gigs a year, then I could have done other stuff and come back to it. But that's just not the way the music business really works when you're dealing with people who are very ambitious and want to be really famous. And, uh, yeah. you know, it's a full-time thing and, you know, you have to keep the thing on the road. And so I just didn't want to, I didn't want to do that. Yeah. And, uh, I quit and it wasn't like I hated it, hated anyone or anything. I just, I just want to do it anymore. And, uh, I started doing all sorts of other stuff and grew in many different ways after that, that, that I, n- I never could have done if I had stayed in the Flectones. Right, yeah. You know, you, you just mentioned uh, the fact that you parted ways. I think that was about 1993. And, you know, your career as a solo artist, composer, studio musician, and, and teacher, you know, really flourished. And, you, you know, you played with so many incredible artists such as, you know, uh, a past guest, Kenny Loggins. Uh, you played with Donald Fagan, Paul Simon. And Dolly Parton, uh, Dennis DeYoung from Styx, and and so many others. And I want to talk about a few of these artists and your association with them. Sure. And the first, and the, I'll just throw out a name and and uh, just give me just you know some background on how you guys connected. And the first one is Kenny Loggins. Uh, you know, and it's funny because I can't remember the name of the arranger, but uh, Kenny had hired a guy to rearrange a lot of his music, and the guy evidently was a fan of mine. And I his name has really slipped my mind, uh, but they flew me out there. 
And uh, I started rehearsing with the band, and Kenny was just as nice as he could be. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was featured on solos and a bunch of his classic tunes. And uh, we cut this, uh, cut this, uh, filmed a video called Outside from the Redwoods. Yeah, which was fantastic. CD. Yeah. And it was shown a lot on public television. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I toured with him, and the, the band had a lot of really great musicians in it. Oh, uh, yeah. Freddie Washington on bass, Herman Matthews on drums. Uh, uh, Chris Rodriguez. Chris Rodriguez, yeah. yeah. Chris yep. is great. Yep. Uh, uh, the great Mark Russo on, on saxophone. Uh, uh, Chris George on uh, on piano. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, from Mr. Mister, you know. Was it Chris right. George? No. No, uh, you're thinking of Steve George. Steve George, I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah. Right. Steve George uh-huh. on piano. And uh, Ed Mann on, on marimbas and vibes. And yep. uh, Kevin Ricard on percussion. I mean, it was just it just felt wonderful. And also... You know, Kenny's music's really heavy and his lyrics are great. And so for me, it was a a great feeling to play with such a Rolls Royce of a rhythm section and yeah. and just to feel like that all the music was at the service of the lyrics and the meaning of the songs. And it, it, it really felt like uh, very easy to play harmonica too. And Kenny really wanted to hear you play soulfully, live. And, uh, you know, he wasn't one of those guys who... Uh, wants all the attention for himself. He really wants to feature the mm-hmm. people playing with him. Uh, you know, he wants them to be as expressive as he is. Yeah. And, uh, so it was it was a very high level experience, and and it felt wonderful. Well, I, that was the first time I experienced uh, hearing you play live, and I think I told you this after the show in Indianapolis. I, I caught you at a show over in Columbus, Ohio. It was supposed to be an outdoor show, the Ohio Theater. Yeah, and they moved it inside to the Ohio Theater, and. Uh, that's the first time I saw Chris Rodriguez play as well. He's been a guest on our show. And, oh, cool. Uh, yeah, he's a great guy. And yes, uh, is. But, yeah, I just remember hearing you for the first time, and it's just, you know, I, I, Howard, I don't know if people tell you this, but you're sort of a show stealer. <laughs> yeah, because, sort of. because you, as soon as you step up and lay down your, you know, your part, it's just you know the crowd is just, I don't know, they're very connected to what you're doing, and, and it, you really knock them out every time. So. Um, another another uh, artist that you've played with, performed with, and I have actually seen you perform with Eddie and I yeah. saw you in Chicago when you were playing with uh, Donald Fagan uh, at the Chicago uh, Theater on the Morph the Cat tour. That's and right. Tell us about your connection with Donald and how that, that happened. Well, it's very funny. I, I found out when I walked in the studio that he had heard me playing on Prairie Home Companion. Really? So you, ne- you never know who's listening. I've been <laughs> on that yeah. show for about, uh, God, I've played about 30 times on that show probably. That's great. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to be on it again. I was just on it uh, May 5th. Uh, it was the first gig I played after the Flexons tour. Okay. And I'm going to be on it again uh, June 23rd. Look at that. Oh, very cool. And, uh, so I walked into the studio, and there's Donald. And, you know, you hear all the stories about how exacting he is and <laughs> yes. everything. And, and he just basically wanted to hear me play. And, and he was great. And uh, just uh, I remember he was kind of agonizing over over this record. And, uh, you know, I guess – you know, putting out a record is the closest a guy can come to childbirth, you know. So, so, <laughs> and you really have to dig into yourself and, and, and extract all this stuff. And it's, it's, it's you know, like, it's a heavy thing when you get, especially like someone like Donald, who's got a lot to say and he's brilliant. And, you know, there's part of him that's a tortured soul, you know, and there's part of him that's funny and part yeah. of him that's, uh, you know, iconoclastic. And uh, But he basically wanted to hear me be me. Right, and we started talking after I played. Uh, we just hung out and started talking about jazz, and yeah, it turned out that both of us 
grew up around New York and went as teenagers to the Village Vanguard and heard all these great jazz musicians. He's a little older than I am. Yeah. But, um, you know, he was in, back there smoking cigarettes when he was uh, 15 listening to jazz. And uh, it took me until I was probably about 17 or 18 to really discover jazz and start going to the Vanguard and, uh, you know, hearing people like uh, Elvin Jones and Herbie Hancock and all those guys. So uh, it turned out we bought all our Blue Note records at the same record store on 8th Street. And, you know, <laughs> just uh, we started talking about particular saxophone solos and, man, you know, we just hit it off as as musicians. Yep. And, and I, I really, uh, uh, I didn't expect that to happen. So that was a very uh, a great feeling. And I, I was thrilled uh, when he asked me to sit in with him um, in Chicago. And it's a funny story about that because I was playing with Chevere mm -hmm. at the Green Mill that night. That's right. It was, uh, it's a long story. It's too long. But basically <laughs> what happened is that uh, somebody figured out that the time that he was doing that song, what I what I do in his show, was the perfect time. It was during my break <laughs> at the Green Mill. I, I, call, I told his tour manager, I said, look, any other band I play with, I would just take off and play. But I'm the music director of this band. I can't, I can't take off the night. Right. Uh, but if you could send a limo up to the side door of the Green Mill and pick me up, I get off stage at 9.01. Uh, you know, I could get down there in time to play the tune because they were playing the tune at 9.25 each night. And I could miss the first tune or two of the next set. I could, we could figure out, you know, since we were playing there for two nights, you, they could play tunes that they didn't really need me to play. I mean, yeah. stuff we don't normally do, but without me, it would still be okay. Right, you know? right. Um, and so they agreed. And uh, everything came off, and I went down there and played, and, and it felt great. And Donald made a little joke about something about me coming down Lake Michigan in a hovercraft or something like that. And uh, <laughs> it was pretty funny. And uh, I had actually made the sound check earlier that day. You know, I really wanted to do it right. I really respect him. And, you know, I came down there and made sure that everything sounded good. And uh, then I went and set up uh, for Chevere and uh, played the first set and went down and did that. And then they drove me back, and I jumped back up on stage in the middle of the second <laughs> tune, and uh, you know, played the next two sets. It was it was a great night. And nobody at the Green Mill knew where you were. <laughs> they did. I mean, it was pretty funny. There, so cool. one of the guys in the band made sure to announce to the audience where I'd oh, been okay. in a very comical way. <laughs> well, well, I believe the track was called "It's What I Do." What I do. What I do. And yeah, that was a phenomenal performance. Yeah, that was uh, you know him having a dream talking to Ray Charles. That's right. That's what he told me. <laughs> That's funny because sometimes when I see Donald perform with his sunglasses on and his kind of the way he moves at the piano, he, he reminds me of a Caucasian Ray Charles. <laughs> oh, quite definitely. Yeah. You know, Ray, I opened for Ray Charles one time. Really? Uh, Did you? And uh, that's one of the, just about the only man that's ever made me cry when he sang. When, <laughs> yeah. he, when he sang Georgia, holy goodness me. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, and he had that extra soul gear that he reached down into and, and, and gotten. It was unbelievable. And his band was fantastic. Yeah. Oh, man, oh, man. That was great. The Ray Letts were, they just sang so perfectly in tune. I mean, everything was super high level. And Ray, man, Ray was just one of my all-time favorite musicians. So, you know, to play on that track for me uh, was, a, was a great comp of things. 
Hey, uh, Howard, I want to jump back to uh, one quick uh, question about the Flectones, and that is, uh, you know, you've, you obviously uh, rejoined them again after 20 years of being absent, and obviously you were in the studio uh, with the Rocket Science album that they created, and then, of course, you went on tour, a pretty extensive tour, and I'm just curious about the your future now with Flectones. Was this sort of a one-off sort of uh, appearance for you, or you're going you're gonna to stay with them for a little while? Yeah, it was really a one-time thing. I mean, we we parted ex- on extremely good terms, but uh, everyone has their own things to do. And uh, if we do do this again, it won't be for another two or three years. I see. Uh, and I don't think there's any plans on us recording uh, any new CDs because uh, yeah, it was really a lot of work to do this last one. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it was you know very concentrated and and a, and a really big tour and. It was fantastically successful, uh, but we did record all our live shows, not all, but almost all of them. So oh, good. I'm sure there's a lot of really great live versions of all sorts of stuff, that uh, some of which never actually uh, came out on any CDs. So, uh, you know, maybe, maybe that'll happen at some time in the future. That would be very cool. Yeah, yeah putting out a live CD and, uh, and doing another tour. You know, Howard, you mentioned that rocket science was a lot of work and, you know, pretty much consumed you during, you know, this most recent stint. But, you know, in true Flectones form, this record was a fantastic collection of music that had a, you know, it had a familiar Flectones feel, but also seemed to cover new territory compared to albums from the past. And I want to take one final break and check out a track called Prickly Pear. And this is from our guest today and one of the original Flectones, Howard Levy.
Hey, one last thing before we end up. Uh, sure. I noticed something online on your website. Is I found it very, very interesting. Can you tell us a little bit about your uh, Howard Levy uh, Harmonica School? I noticed that there's uh, you have a, a video programs and that type of thing in case our audience or, and listeners are interested. Yeah, that's a, that's a very interesting thing. It's a company from California called Artist Works, mm-hmm. and they uh, have a whole bunch of websites of various different musicians. Some in the bluegrass field, some rock, some jazz, uh, some classical, and uh, right smack dab in the middle is me on harmonica, and uh, it's really great. There are a lot of pre-recorded lessons, and I, I try to teach in every style that I play in, which is quite a few, mm-hmm. and uh, from the most beginning basic stuff, assuming you knew nothing, to the highest level stuff I do. Wow. And uh, students can have unlimited access to the website for as long as they subscribe, yeah. three months, six months, a year. It's extremely affordable. Three months cost less than... Uh, than taking one lesson from me, wow. so uh, yeah, yeah, it's it's extremely affordable, and it's it, it's got tons of of ways of learning. Uh, there's interviews, there's performances, there's uh, students can send me a video. Uh, I will comment on it, and the two are paired together as a little mini masterclass on the website. It's called Video Exchange. Wow. And everyone can view that, so everyone learns from everyone else. Wow. Uh, the, the people who set this up. Are, are brilliant. Uh, David Butler, who was one of the main developers of AOL 1.0 and Instant Messenger, is the guy who runs the company, and his wife Patricia uh, also runs it with them. And they have a fantastic staff. Uh, it's it's great. I, I wholeheartedly recommend it to anyone who's interested in the harmonica at all. I mean, ninety dollars for three months. What a deal! I mean, it's 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 really remarkable, and uh, you know, harmonica players are funny though because the instrument is so cheap. Uh, you could buy a diatonic <laughs> harmonica, a very good one, for you know twenty five, thirty five dollars. It's the only instrument that's cheaper than the lesson. <laughs> and, and a lot of harp players tend to be very kind of you know countercultural and kind of rebellious types. You know, yeah, that's yeah. the way I was, and. Yeah, you take you get the harp and you put it in your pocket and you figure, you know, you uh screw around with it long enough, you'll you'll get some music to come out of it. But uh, a little bit of instruction really, really can be helpful. And a website like this, uh, really, no matter what kind of music you want to play on the diatonic harmonica, you can learn something here. So that's cool. uh, thanks for asking about it. And anybody that's interested, that's Howard Levy com. And, you know, just looking ahead to the next half of 2012, I'm just curious about what other projects you're going to be involved in. Well, uh, you know, uh, I'm going to be doing some touring in Europe in the fall with uh, another group that I've performed with which uh, and recorded with. It's called Riesler Levy Matinier. It's a fantastic German bass clarinet player named Michael Riesler mm-hmm. and uh, an amazing French accordion player named Jean-Louis Matinier. Okay. And we have a, a CD out on the Angel label called Silver and Black. And uh, we're playing concerts around Europe as well as I'm doing some uh, solo concerts there and performing with Chris Siebold, fantastic guitarist who's yeah. in my group Acoustic Express. Uh, and we're going to be, uh, Acoustic Express is playing some gigs here in this country as well. Cool. And I'm also playing some concerts uh with a, a fantastic German uh, pipe organist named Matthias Grunert, 
uh, who was the organist at the Frauenkirche in Dresden. Wow. And we're going to be playing uh, Bach and sorts of stuff on harmonica and pipe organ together, which we, we did one concert like that a few years ago, and it was really great. So we're doing a few more. Uh, this is the kind of variety I really like in my life. And I'm also going to be performing the Bach E minor flute sonata at uh, a big uh, concert uh, festival in Toronto on uh, September 24th. It's the 100th birthday of Glenn Gould, and I'm going to be performing that with a harpsichordist. Wow. Very cool. And uh, the other thing I do, which is pretty interesting, uh, every year I play the Jewish High Holiday Services. I read, uh, yeah. For a very interesting congregation on the North Shore uh, called Eitz Chaim. And uh, I do this with my son playing drums with me. His name is Miles Levy, and he's a wonderful drummer. And we do all sorts of music at these services that you would never expect to hear at uh, in a Jewish temple. Okay. Uh, and uh, a few years ago, we performed the cantor sang the words from John Coltrane's poem on the Love Supreme. Scene, Are uh, you serious? That was a bit it's amazing. Called, it's called Psalm. And if you know about that album, the fourth yeah. piece, Psalm, is a piece that no one ever plays because it's not really in any time meter. Um, it's not a tune the way the other tunes are tunes. Right. It turns out that Coltrane was playing the poem that he that he wrote, uh, which was a poem praising God okay. on the tenor. Yeah, the way that a, a Jewish cantor would sing uh, one a text, you know, yes. from the from the Torah. Sure. And I told the can this cantor about it, and he loved it. And we performed it about four years ago, I think. And he held, he read the poem off the back of the of the record, the, my old Impulse uh, Coltrane album, holding it up for <laughs> everyone to see. And uh, it was one of the you know these little old Jewish ladies would come up afterwards and say, "You really like the Coltrane piece." You know? <laughs> so we're going to do that again this year on Yom Kippur. That's fabulous. That is wonderful. Is there a recording of that at all, Howard, or is that was that you not know, recorded? Uh, there might be uh, somebody who documents everything on video, but uh, this yeah. year, we're, yeah, it's it's sort of in house, you know. Yeah, it's not really for public consumption. Yeah. Uh, but I'm also going to try to set one of the Torah portions to, to music and and have additional musicians come in. It's a, it's a really a kind of wild thing. I'm sort of the minister of music, uh, and it's a, it's something I never thought I would do, but they seem to really love my music, and they like to hear me talk about music and its spiritual significance to me and it seems like it it really uh is a is a good blend it's a a good meshing of yeah. of where they're coming from and where i'm coming from and i do it with a lot of humility because i don't pretend to be any kind of religious authority at yeah. all and they understand where i'm coming from and uh it, it's 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 wonderful. Plus, I love playing with my son, and he lives in New York now, and so I, yeah. I don't get to play with him too often. So, uh, he just played a gig at John John Zorn's club, The Stone. Yeah, about a month ago. You can check out Miles Levy on YouTube, and there's a little clip. They're playing an Ornette Coleman tune with a trumpeter and a bass player. That's so, so cool. Uh, I'm actually planning on recording an album with him this June in Chicago with an excellent bass player in Chicago named Larry Gray who's on my Tonight and Tomorrow CD. That's okay. my, uh, uh, the, the CD I did for the uh, Chicago Sessions label that has uh, some free improvs on it that are some of, actually some of my favorite tracks. 
That's Very there's cool. one, one called Triosity that was just absolutely off the top of our heads uh, in the middle of doing other very highly arranged pieces that I was mostly playing piano on. Uh, and this was just, let's just play free and I'm just going to play harmonica. No discussion yeah. whatsoever. That's neat. And uh, it is one of Triosity. It's one of my very favorite things I ever recorded. I'll have to check that out. Hey, yeah. Howard, I know uh, you're out of time and I can't tell you how much we're uh, we appreciate you spending time with us and with, for this chat it's been wonderful i think our fans are going to dig it and uh, and it sounds like you're busy and it sounds like a lot of things are happening so we're, we're glad to hear that howard thanks so much for joining us today sure a pleasure and maybe i'll see you guys are in india maybe yeah. i'll maybe i'll see you one of these days hopefully yeah and uh we may head up to chicago sometime and catch you at the green mill or something yeah i'll be there uh, july 6th and 7th with acoustic express awesome great thanks howard thanks again yep. you're welcome all right bye-bye bye-bye Special thanks to Howard Levy for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. We'd also like to thank our correspondents, Kim Riley, Brian Pearson, Scott Gross, Max Zape, Mikhail Ingstrom, Uwe Wright, and Scott Sheriff for their continued support and content development for Inside Music Cast. Inside Music Cast is powered by Cabello Associates and Earshot Audio Post. For information about becoming a sponsor and sharing your message with thousands of music fans around the world, please visit InsideMusicCast.com for contact information. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside Music Cast. Inside Music Cast.